1967, and nightclub owner Donald King has just been found guilty of manslaughter. An unforeseen fight with one of his business associates has led to Don King being arrested and sentenced to four years in prison at the Marion Correctional Institute. He's lost everything, his business, his freedom, and even his name. Those four years are long, hard, and bleak. But it gives King time to think and plot his next moves. He decides he's going to turn his life around, and he wants to go big. But not in the nightclub industry, where he worked before and was sent to jail. No, he wants to take over the world of boxing. You can get in the game, not at the top of the game, but there are enough fighters who don't have a home, don't have good representation. There are enough venues where you could get credit to put on a show. You could put money down and finance the promotion. All the kind of technical things you have to go through are a lot more accessible to people of all walks of life, colors, and creeds. Four years have passed and King has served his time. After he came out, he embarked on his boxing dream journey. And it's pretty much a success story. He made himself the central touchstone figure to all the boxers he promoted. Other promoters that have had rivaling success, I don't know that uh, by the numbers anyone has bested him as a legend, but that I think again is because how well he crafted the personalities around him, how well he promoted other fighters, but always took a bit of the spotlight for himself. King was on top of the boxing world, and it seemed like he'd stay there forever. But along the way, it looked like he cut a bunch of corners and made all sorts of shady deals. And organizing a tournament was one of them. As it turns out, King wasn't so invincible after all. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, boxing's dirty business. All right, fellas, I want a good, clean fight. Nothing below the belt. You know the deal. Touch gloves and fight. You know, boxing, these days, it's one of the most popular sports in the world. With audiences in the millions and televised events that take place every weekend in pretty much every country. But it's also one of the toughest sports. I mean, think about it. These fighters train for years to put everything on the line. Sometimes they sacrifice it all, including their life. If you listen to this show from the very beginning, you might remember we did a story about this fighter, Billy Collins Jr., who ended up dead as a result of glove tampering. You know, stepping into the ring for 12 rounds, getting your face punched in, it takes more than just being in shape. It's brutal. Boxing is a lifestyle. Everything else is a sport. That's sports commentator and boxing journalist, Radio Raheem. You can play any other sport on the planet because the way that 
boxers live and the mentality that you have to have to even have the audacity to think you can compete in this sport, much less make a living at it, much less live a life dedicated to it, it's closer to a religion than it is an athletic pursuit. There's a sort of beauty to this sport, a sweet science, as they call it. And it's true. It's entertaining. We scream, chant, and boo the fighters. We marvel as one fighter throws a a right hook. We gasp when the opponent slips the punch, parries and counters with a jab, and steps out to launch his own wild haymaker. And if that's the lucky knockout blow, the crowd rises to their feet to give the last person standing their praise for a well-fought bout. The popularity of this sport shows that we love watching fighters beat the shit out of each other. We really don't tend to pay much attention to what goes on behind the scenes of a boxing event. Outside of the ring, there's a whole different fight being fought. One where the gloves come off and money, contracts, and contacts are the main tools in your arsenal. That's where the promoters come in. These are the guys that make it happen. Not only do they secure the funding and platforms for these fights, but they also decide who fights who, when they fight, and where. A promoter first needs willing participants. You need fighters. Generally speaking, you need fighters that have uh, enough physical ability to pass the most standard of physicals and get approved by a doctor. You need money to be able to lease a venue, to be able to put credit on the line that you can pay your fighters after the fight. You need to be able to have medical standing by. You need to be able to promote your event. You need to be able to purchase a ring. You need to be able to prove that you have the organizational skills even to put on a show. And you need a boxing promoter's license I'm sure you can imagine, like all sports entertainment, there's a business side to boxing. But this isn't a normal business. It's not enough to have a quick entrepreneurial mind and a head for numbers. Most important of all, you need a vision. You need to believe that this is something you can do and have a vision that you're able to follow through on in putting a promotion together. While the promoters are a big part of the boxing world, they don't usually have the same level of fame as the fighters they promote. And I suppose that's fair enough because it's the fighters who are training, taking hits, and lining their stomach with carbs and protein in order to make their weight class. The promoters, they have to walk a fine line between being recognizable enough to get their message across and shout about whatever it is they're selling and not being so famous that they end up stealing the show. And for the most part, they seem to handle that balancing act pretty well, with the exception of one person who everyone had their eyes on, like in this report from Dan Rather. There were only 10 boxing broadcasts. This year, there'll be something like 50. At the center of this renaissance is a flamboyant figure named Don King. For both the fighters and the fans, the name Don King is one that people know all too well. But... If you don't, our resident boxing consultant, Radio Raheem, will introduce him. The reason that the one name that you will recognize, 
even if you didn't recognize the other four, is Don King, is because he's the one who revolutionized self-promoting as a boxing promoter. Don King was able to recognize that there are many elements that will make someone memorable beyond bombastic speech and boisterous presentation, sometimes rhyming sentences. He had a physical appearance in that incredibly ridiculously quaffed hair that went seemed to be touching the clouds. I mean, most of y'all have probably seen what Don King looks like. But if you haven't, I suggest you go Google him because this guy had quaffed hair before Trump had quaffed hair. But it wasn't just his outward appearance that made him stick in people's heads. It was his talent management skills as well. His ability to turn boxing stars into boxing superstars. He made himself the central touchstone figure to all the boxers he promoted. And it must be said that most fighters, especially in that day, didn't have the personality of a Muhammad Ali. Didn't have the charisma or the charm of a Floyd Mayweather. These fighters often have to be drawn out their personalities. You have to get people to relate to them based on where they're from, maybe their social or economic background, and surely their nationality, something that connects them. There's no two ways about it. Some of the greatest fighters owe their success and fame to this guy. But there was a time when the world of boxing didn't even know the name Don King. He came to boxing promotion a bit later in life. It's not like this has been his lifelong pursuit or as though it was the only thing he'd ever done. But it was clearly the one thing that he did that had success in the legitimate world. This guy was in the streets. And so it's not for me to speak on what he was doing in those streets or where he may have found his business. But I do know that the skills he learned in the street, he applied in the business of boxing to great success. For King, there were definitely rags before the riches. But he sure as hell wasn't going to let the circumstances he was born into dictate the rest of his life. He had gambling and nightclub businesses, and that brought him a fair amount of wealth. But these are Wild West industries, especially back in the 60s. Danger and crime were always around the corner. If you were in that world, your chances of ending up dead or in prison were pretty high. And on the 6th of April of 1966, Don King had a brush with both. I've heard more than one story. So when I hear more than one story and I have no personal knowledge of what went on, I can't take any one account over the other. So I, I chalk it up to a guy who made his money in the street, who clearly found himself on the wrong end of some different kind of shady dealings. Whatever the details, it seems that King got into a fight with a business associate over money he was owed. The two ended up exchanging blows, and King knocked him out so hard that he fell to the ground and cracked his skull. King's associate sadly died as a result of his injuries, and as for Don King, well, he was sentenced to four years in prison in the Marion Correctional Institute. And the charge? 
manslaughter. Prison was a far cry from Don King's high-roller lifestyle. In fact, he described those four years as the darkest years of his life. You got to remember, this was in the 60s. Racism was rife in the United States. If you were just walking the streets as a law-abiding black person, you had it bad. But it was 10 times worse if you were black and in prison. Hell. It was hell. (laughs) King had gone from dishing out the orders to following them. He'd gone from being a pretty successful businessman to just a number. That was a number in the cell block in Marion Correctional Institution, 125734. But despite the demeaning nature of his new status in society, King kept his pride in check. He kept his head down and did his time. You see, prison was actually a blessing in disguise for King. It gave him time to reflect on his life and really plot out his next moves. As he put it, he didn't serve his time. He made his time serve him. And that became pretty clear when he got out of prison. More on that after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. It's September of 1971. Don King's been out of prison for only a few days when he settles on a new career for himself. Yep, you guessed it, boxing. (laughs) So, how do you go from running nightclubs to serving time in prison for manslaughter and then just suddenly becoming a boxing promoter? Well, actually... The nightclub business was a great stepping stone for King. It gave him the opportunity to rub shoulders with all sorts of celebrities, including the former heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. He clearly had a connection with Muhammad Ali. Shortly after deciding on his career change, King figured he was going to host an exhibition match to raise money for Cleveland's Forest City Hospital. And Muhammad Ali was the main attraction for the night. He saw an opportunity to bring the heavyweight champion in on a promotion for a hospital and a charity event that he was able to pull people together to work. He clearly had an idea uh, to raise money for this hospital and was able to marry the two. King's first parlay into the world of boxing, it went pretty well. Yeah. He hit a couple snags along the way, like nearly losing Cleveland Arena, the venue for the night, on account of being an ex-convict. But King, being the slick operator that he is, he managed to smooth that over. The night itself was a huge hit. Packed arena, a star fighter, and musical performances by big names like Marvin Gaye. 
King and his team managed to rake in profits of over $18,000 from the event, the biggest earnings from any exhibition event at the time. Don King had done it, but he wasn't stopping there. He wanted to go bigger and bolder than the city of Cleveland. Under the auspices of President Mobutu from the heartland of Africa, live and direct from ringside in Kinshasa, Zaire, this is David Frost welcoming you to the World Heavyweight Championship fight between the champion, George Foreman, and the former champion, now the challenger, Muhammad Ali. Yep, that iconic match where Muhammad Ali did the rope-a-dope and knocked out George Foreman in the final round. That would have never happened without Don King. It was King who brokered the deal with then-dictatorial leader of Zaire, Mobutu Sese Siko, for an unprecedented $5 million prize purse. King had clearly found his footing in the world of boxing. By the time the third Ali Frazier fight rolled around, Don King was the promoter. And he stayed on top by being a tough and astute businessman. Don King was doing things no other promoter could ever do. And for a lot of other people, that'd be enough. But guess what? He wasn't other people. He wanted to cement his name in U.S. boxing history. It's the 1976 Summer Olympics in Quebec, Canada. And the U.S. are smashing it. In fact, the U.S. was doing so well, they ended up finishing second on the leader table, racking up 94 medals, 34 of which were gold. Don King, like millions of other people, is watching. His business brain is ticking away, trying to look for an opportunity to capitalize on the success of U.S. Olympic athletes and use it to his own benefit. And then it hits him. Why not host an all-American boxing tournament, one where the best of the best would go toe-to-toe with each other to earn the title of best fighter in the United States. The format was simple. Gather a bunch of American fighters in each weight division and get them to compete against each other. For King, this wasn't hard to do. At this point, he was becoming a big name in the boxing world, and a lot of small-time managers were itching to get their fighters signed with King, so he really wasn't short on fighters. What he needed, as always, was cash. But of course, the man had a plan. King took his pitch to the American Broadcasting Corporation, ABC, and they basically said, no, bro. Mainly because they couldn't vouch for the legitimacy of the fighters and of King. Now, for most folks, that'd be the end of things. But this is Don King we're talking about. And he wasn't going to let a no get in the way of his dream American tournament. His first move was to corner every U.S. boxing champion and get them to agree to take part. Some said yes, but most, like Marvin Hagler, said, Hell no. In the end, King's lineup consisted mainly of unknown boxers who were still trying to make a name for themselves. This meant that King still had a legitimacy problem. And that brings us to the second half of his plan. King reached out to none other than John Ort, editor of The Ring. It's a magazine that's like the Bible for boxing. 
he got John to agree to being one of the tournament's executives. We at the ring coordinate the tournament with Don King and ABC. We have the ratings that are the basis of this tournament, the United States ring ratings. Now, the top men have been sent an invitation in the ratings out to them, and they have accepted or not accepted to be in this tournament. The ABC executives were satisfied. They agreed to give King $1.5 million in funding and 23 hours of broadcasting time over an eight-month period. This dude's a hustler. This is no Kentucky Derby, no Super Bowl with their sold-out seats. This is a made-for-television event. At this point, you've probably clocked that Don King loves to put on a show. And he does that by doing things that have never been done before. Things that'll stick in the minds of his audience. And this tournament was no different. Come January 1977, the start of the championship. And King has once again done something which no promoter has done before. This dude is hosting the first bout on a U.S. Navy air carrier. Here he is addressing the crowd on a ship. Because I'm a Navy man. And as Navy men, we stick together. We deal with solidarity, unity, and togetherness. And there is no such thing as the word can't. When you tell a Navy man, can it be done, is done. Now, I think most of us would assume that King probably was not a Navy man. But it didn't matter, because the spectacle of the event was enough for people to ignore his bullshit and not ask any questions. It's the 6th of March, 1977. The best of the U.S. tournament is two months in, and King, well, he's back in Marion Correctional Facility. The only difference is, this time, he's not there as inmate 125734. He's not in an orange jumpsuit but a golden three-piece suit. He's there as Donald King, boxer promoter and mastermind of this event. The seven-fight match card was another unprecedented event. For the first time in not just boxing history, but in the history of television, a live program was going to be broadcasted from a prison block. Things seemed to be going well. The broadcasters were drawing in millions of viewers and King and his associates were getting rich in the process. The tournament was going to be another big hit on Don King's belt. Until Flash Gordon showed up. Flash Gordon. <laughs> no, not that super fast superhero Flash Gordon. I'm talking about Malcolm Flash Gordon. A disheveled looking boxing reporter who loves the sport, but wasn't always loved himself. Gordon was kind of an anti-hero in the boxing world. He'd made a career out of exposing shady deals and corruption in the sport. Like a lot of pundits at the time, Gordon was watching the run-up to King's Best of the U.S. Championship with beady eyes. It was then that he noticed something that piqued his interest. A lot of the small-time club fighters were signing with Don King. But that wasn't all. These small-time fighters were appearing in the big-time boxing magazine, The Ring. You remember how King teamed up with John Ort to give the tournament more legitimacy? 
Well, John was head of the rankings board, which meant that his ranking decisions determined who fought who in the tournament. Malcolm Flash Gordon noticed that John had been making some pretty strange moves. Stuff like ranking former middleweight champion and current Texas policeman, Ike Flewellen, number 10 in the U.S. Gordon voiced these concerns throughout the tournament, and pretty soon, folks started to listen. Even ABC's executives decided to launch an investigation. And what they discovered sent the whole tournament crashing down. Find out why after the break. It's the morning of April 16, 1977. Two unbeaten heavyweight boxers, Larry Holmes and Stan Ward, are scheduled to go head-to-head later that afternoon in Don King's Best of the U.S. Tournament. But before they even get a chance to touch gloves, the fight is called off. And theirs isn't the only one. All remaining matches have also been canceled. ABC has suspended the tournament turns out that quite a few of the managers of the fighters in the tournament had paid John Ort to rank them in the top 10 U.S. rankings board so that they could compete in the tournament, which sort of explains how a fighter like Ike Flewellen was ranked number 10 when this dude hadn't fought in over a year. But wait, hang on a minute. If you're going to be making ranking decisions, don't you need evidence of good fight records to back it up? Well, turns out those fight records were also fake. Completely made up. Here's Malcolm Gordon explaining the Ring Magazine's forgery. I will show you a fighter in Ring Magazine who was in 1975 record book, who had nine professional fights that year. He fought nine fights. He lost one and won eight. Nine fictitious names. Seven of the nine are dead and they all boxed within 40 years of each other, and it's all listed in the record book, accurately, the dates that they fought and everything. It's absolutely fictitious, made up, it's a joke. Well, I mean, if we're just making up fight records, then put me in the books is like 13 and 0, beating all the heavyweight champs. Like, what, what, what kind of nonsense is this? This is not even smart cheating. They just created records of boxers beating dead dudes? Come on. At the center of what can only be described as a shit show seemed to be none other than Donald King himself. I mean, after all, this tournament was his baby. He was the one who put John Ort on the championship committee. And as the investigation later discovered, he paid Ort $5,000 in cash money to facilitate these backroom deals. It all came out in the report from ABC. ABC told King to have fighters and managers sign affidavits, swearing they hadn't paid to get in the tournament. All that did was make some managers lie. The fallout from this was insane, and it seemed like everyone was implicated in the scandal. From the managers who paid bribes to get their fighters' records falsified, to the fighters who signed affidavits declaring that their records were accurate, to John Ort, editor of The Ring magazine, who falsified the records, to Don King himself, who sat at the top of the whole thing. Usually, when a scandal is brought to light, there tends to be a scapegoat, and you want it to be the big dog. But in this case, 
things didn't really play out that way. No one involved in the fraudulent tournament was prosecuted, despite ABC turning over their evidence to the FBI. John Ort was fired as editor, but The Ring magazine was able to salvage its reputation by cleaning up house and issuing a correction to the fake records. And as for Don King, ever the survivalist, he just carried on promoting fights. These revelations put an even bigger question mark on him. But let's not forget, for the four months that the tournament was broadcast, he did some pretty historical stuff. Enough to allow him to keep his boxing promoter's license and carry on as if nothing major had ever really happened. It's important to remember that there is no global sanctioning body. There's not even a federal one in America. Yeah, I know, you know, we all know that this ain't exactly fair. Cheaters should get their just desserts, but who exactly did he cheat? I mean, yeah, it looks like he lied to the ABC executives, but the boxing industry is the wild west of sports entertainment. The rules, they follow a sort of make-it-up-as-you-go-along format, and that's exactly what King did. But people didn't like it. It seemed wrong. It seemed like there should be rules. If there were rules, King probably still would have broken them. But that's not exactly the same as breaking pre-existing rules, is it? So enough people had to get together and decide, you know what? There should be rules for what he's done. And he just broke them. Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Kaf Opata. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Production help from Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola.